democracy. You would be hard put to find someone who is opposed to democracy. Everyone, everyone seems to be a fan. Politicians, politicians tell us they, how much they love democracy. Even tyrants give lip service to democracy. Unitarian Universalists wrote their commitment to democracy into their bylaws. The member congregations covenant with each other to affirm and promote the right of conscience and the use of the democratic process within our congregations and in society at large. Right there. By law. Still, I think we would all agree that democracy on a global scale is more aspirational than realized. I pose to you, in these United States, does a fully informed, engaged body politic participating in the decisions that inform their lives? Do, they, do we see that lively conversation among people coming together, making decisions together? Now, we all know. We all know because we've been, we get it on the news that there's a low level of voter participation. In some of our local elections, less than 20% of the people show up at the polls or vote. I, I, I consider myself a fairly informed voter. I, I do. Try. But when I'm in the voting booth, I don't know all the people running for all the offices. Being an informed citizen takes a lot of time. And most of us don't have that kind of time. Judge of the probate court. <laughs> I didn't take the time to know that. Then there are all the obstacles to voting. Not only the requirements designed to limit participation, but by politicians who want a small turnout, and we hear about all of that. And if you want to know one of the barriers to participation in elections, it's the elections are always seem to be held in one day on a weekday, which is really Tuesday being the most convenient day of the week. <laughs> Inconvenient hours for most people, for parents, for working people. But is voting really, is really that what democracy is all about? That seems to be what we're taught. We're taught that the getting there and voting that's what it's, uh, that's democracy. Ask around. Many people just will tell you that's what democracy means. Democracy means you have a choice. You get to choose between candidates. Choose a candidate. Francis Fox Piven says that's the problem. Choose between candidates. She argues that if candidates just are the same old, same old, the same thing that would be expected, then people don't feel engaged. They just see, what's the choice? Between, you're supposed to choose between candidates, but the candidates seem to be saying the same thing. Not much at all. She states, why do so few people vote? Because they don't experience the candidate as providing a choice. Simple. And we have to admit that many, in many, many elections, that's a fair observation. If we live in a time when the vast majority of the people are experiencing rising housing costs, 
rising health care costs, rising transportation costs, declining opportunities, declining incomes, declining prospects, barriers to participation in, in, in medical care in colleges. And if, for the most part, the political candidates aren't talking about those concerns, then we have a demoralization of the electorate. Why vote if the problem is not being addressed in the election? But a demoralized electorate, a demoralized populace, a demoralized people is a crisis for democracy. Demoralization, or as Conrad, uh, as Cornell West says, cynicism is a problem of democracy. Sheldon Wallen puts it that we're witnessing an evolution, an evolution that sees electoral politics becoming assimilated into the practices of the marketplace. Candidates market it as products. Elections reduce to slogans and, and advertisements. Voters maneuvered into the position where crevet abtur, the buyer beware, becomes their most reliable guide. All this suggests a conclusion that postmodern despotism consists in the collapse of real politics, into economics, and the emergence of a new form, the economic polity. Yes, postmodern despotism, the naked rule of money, the open manipulation of opinion by a bot media. Let us occupy our reality. Let us say, that is our reality, yes. And let us make something of it. Indeed, many in thoughtful people have come to the conclusion that our democracy is in trouble. So democracy is our common aspiration. We all love democracy. But do people really decide their own future? Or do they simply choose between less attractive alternatives? what is called, some people call lesser evils. So, I don't think there's a solution going forward on that track. We gotta step back. We gotta look at this from a different angle. We gotta think about this differently. Greg Hap says, if we step back and see the big picture and think broader, perhaps our idea of democracy must be more than simply passively choosing candidates. It has to be more than that, or it won't work. The US Constitution suggests other venues of popular participation to the Democrat, in the democratic process. It doesn't just say you get a chance to vote and choose between the Federalists and the Whigs. It doesn't say that. It says the right of assembly, the right of petition, the right to share one's ideas, speak, the right to press, the right to join in unfettered religious communities. So these are democratic rights and they, none of them are about voting. Since the beginning of human communities, people have been coming together to deliberate and make decisions together. Councils, as Marge Percy says. 
And today, today, we see mass movements arising in response to the threats to our environment. We see activity on the part of people, people coming together and trying to influence their world in response to ongoing police violence against our children and young people against the African-American community. We see movements and we see people standing on the streets with signs look, and demonstrating in response to violence against migrants. The dem demonization of Muslims and Asian and Latino communities. We see people in action. And in response to the monopolization of wealth by the 1% and the mass impoverishment of the many, we see movements. We see organizing. Mass movements, mass movements that really involve hundreds of thousands of people. Now, you may not get that on television. You may have to go to church and listen to the announcements. <laughs> but millions of people, yes, millions. The Occupy movement was all that more in hundreds of cities, in dozens of nations, and many of you have participated in, the, in movements and exercised your right to assembly, your right to petition, your right to be heard and to influence events. You have exercised your rights. And sometimes you've done that with fellow members of First Parish. You've been together, carrying that congregational banner, standing on the side of love. And these movements have had their impact. They have shaped the conversation. For example, the majority of people now believe in marriage equality. Thirty years ago, such a change in popular opinion would have seemed beyond dreaming. It was grassroots organizing, mass movements, petitioning, rallying, and court challenges that led the way to the change of mind and hearts. Lots and lots of conversation, lots and lots and lots of conversation for years. Did choosing between politicians really help that much around that? Because it was, it seemed to me, just four years ago, the politicians were still saying the same, I don't, not yet, not yet. It's four years ago, right? Politicians were not helpful even just four years. Now they're all for it. So this led to the way a change in minds and hearts, not the process of just simply passively choosing between candidates, because the candidates only start to talk about this issue when their mass movements had made it impossible for them to avoid talking about this issue, these issues. And for the most part, politicians follow sea changes. They follow public opinion, and public opinion is made by people talking, moving, acting, changing, conversations, arguments, arguments. Arguments are okay if you're nice to each other. So politicians follow. They don't always lead. People participated in a democratic process, protest, organized prophecy, and wrote and taught and protested some more. So democracy 
is not just choosing between competing candidates for office. Democracy is about people engaged with each other, changing minds, changing hearts, changing the moral vision, changing the expectations about what is possible. And that happens almost always at the grassroots, at the locality. When small groups counseling together, as Marge Percy says, sitting on the floor listening to each other in the dark, that's where human hearts and minds are changed at the level of local community. While the local national media and the political establishment are still debating yesterday's anxieties. Put it this way, it becomes clear that the notion that politics and religion exist in separate worlds is it nonsense when you come to congregations all over the country and hear that the conversation is going on in coffee hours and everything like that about, as I was saying, well, you can't talk about politics at coffee hour. It, you're not going to do that. So people talk to each other, and that's how change happens. And politics, politics and religion are, have a very similar place. Politics is how values and moral visions become institutionalized. Religious communities are incubators and transmitters of values and moral visions. And religious communities can nurture reaction fear of the other, and we know that happens in religious communities. And they can propagate ideas that keep people in boxes, but it's also true that religious communities can nurture love and inclusion and champion progressive change and support individuals in the kind of spiritual growth that sustains and transforms. To instill an expanded vision of the human prospect, to insist on the possibility of peace in the face of violence, and sometimes that is very much located in religious communities and other grassroots kinds of organizations that involve people locally. So if real change comes from the locality, from the grassroots, from, uh, from the voluntary associations in the community, then we can say that Unitarian Universalism has a certain genius to it. As a community of communities, as an association of congregations that covenant to affirm and promote the right of conscience and the use of the democratic process within our congregation and society at large, then our association of local congregations is also a continental and worldwide community of Unitarian Universalists. So while we can participate in the national debates, we have all the advantages of that local coming together and changing minds and hearts that goes on between people. So we are living witnesses to the notion, and I'm sure you've all heard that notion, think globally, act locally. Think 
globally act locally. At the level of community, local and interpersonal, where the transformation of the heart and mind takes place, where people experiencing challenge of change and can find community and support. And believe me, changing one's mind on big issues sometimes requires support because you've been taught all your life about certain questions and how to respond to certain questions and you come and are challenged by these big questions and find out you might have to change how your attitudes toward war and peace and other people and it's good to be in community when you're in that change to be loved and held but that wider perspective of global perspectives expands our concerns so that we're holding not the whole Mother Earth together. All of the global climate change questions is a global question. All of our sisters and brothers in, who are turned into refugees by wars, those are global questions. They impact us in the community, but we also have to be reaching out to these global questions. So perhaps, Perhaps the solution to the crisis of democracy is near at hand, in the locality, in the gathered community. First Parish Cambridge is a community based on voluntary association, formed in mutual covenant, who have together chosen, you have together chosen what you will become. You did that, you've done that. Consider your mission statement, created by extensive congregational discussion, adopted by congregational vote. Mission statement is what guides your standing committee. It's what guides all the ministries of First Parish. People are asked, how is what you are proposing for a new ministry flow from the mission of First Parish? And you decide of that mission together. So I hear First Parish speaking its vision. Awakened by worship, nourished by tradition, united by love, we strive to create multicultural, spirit-filled community that works for justice, fosters spiritual curiosity and faith formation, and shares joy, heals brokenness, celebrates the sacred in all. We welcome people of all beliefs, ages, classes, colors, ethnicities, abilities, sexual orientation, gender identities, and expressions. Vision, democratic vision. The congregation has clearly stated what it wishes to become. And we strive to create a multicultural, spirit-filled community that works for justice. We strive to create. That's a transformational aspiration. You're not only saying you want to become multicultural, you also recognize, and I think you recognize because you created a transformation committee who witnessed to us today to start to do the slow work of helping you engage in that transformation. To realize that vision, you have to commit to a fundamental cultural change. Multiculturalism doesn't come naturally. It comes, it's a learned, learned thing. And because this congregation, because this congregation exists in an urban area, 
Greater Boston. And Greater Boston has witnessed racism, injustice, violence, brokenness, been the home and seat of refugees who are in hiding, been a place where there has been homophobic violence. That's what goes on in Boston. You all know that. And we know that the people of Greater Boston experience sadness, and we know that they are impacted by economic forces beyond their control and that put stresses on the members' households and, of course, put stresses on the congregation's budget. So to persist in the journey to becoming multicultural isn't easy because there are countervailing forces of the, of the whole society pushing, 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 trying to hold you back into monoculture, into fear, into just conquering down. Persist in the journey of multiculturalism takes courage, and courage requires community. To seek to be justice-seeking is countercultural. To live in a society where injustice is the norm requires action. And the wider cultural practice is hostility toward non-dominant cultures. Yet it is your mission to strive to overcome this hostility and to stand on the side of love. Hmm. Now sometimes members of the congregation wonder, shouldn't we have made more progress? I mean, after all, we've had this mission statement for few years and shouldn't the beloved community have been appeared among us been here by now shouldn't we become multicultural in all kinds of ways by now I'll just take myself for uh, as an example I hope it's not discouraging but I've been in the struggle against racism for over 50 years. And I've seen a lot of progress, a lot of progress. And I've seen people grow in understanding. But I've also seen racism and oppression persist. And I've come to accept that deep in my soul, this is a multi-generational struggle, a struggle that we're now preparing our children to engage in. The 500 years of racism and violence that have come to these, this continent will not be overcome in a few years. We've experienced beloved glimpses of beloved community, moments of profound insight, deepening of cross-cultural understandings. We've all experienced those moments where we say, ah, I got that beloved community, but then we've still got to work on it to keep it going. And even the breakthroughs when institutions become transformed, even if First Parish becomes so much so transformed that you're going to live in Cambridge. And Cambridge won't be transformed for a few more years after you do. Boston won't be transformed before a few more years after Cambridge. It's going to take a while. But you'll say, if you look at what's been done in First Parish, we have made progress. We have accomplished much. And as long as racism and oligarchy and oppressive systems persist in the wider society, we will continue, continue to be a work in progress. 
we will continue to be on a journey toward wholeness. So for me, the maxim, think globally and act locally, is my answer to the crisis of democracy. First Parish Cambridge commits itself to a mission, a transformational vision of what it wishes to become, and then elects a standing committee to keep that mission in mind and keep, give leadership to the congregation, making it real. And over the last several months, you've also participated in a process of clarifying your vision of the next settled minister, who will help you become more, uh, more realizing this vision, because that's why you're going to go out there and look for that minister, who will help you move toward shared ministry to realize your multicultural, justice-seeking, loving, beloved community. Democracy is a practice, and you practicing it has been going on for centuries in this congregation. And democracy of conversation, review, assessment, revision, never perfect, but always reforming, always pushing, always criticizing and saying, let's, we could do better, let's do better, let's go do better renewing and including commitment and in community. Contrast First Parish to the intentions, contentious and demagogic debate that is unfolding in this presidential election year. Contrast with the democracy that we've gone through in the last few months through the congregational conversations with what's going on in the debate, debate, in the presidential year. Big issues facing our people are not discussed in those debates. Politicians diminish each other. Partisans for contending sides become angrier and angrier. Slogans are substituted. When we talk about the vision for against climate change, we get slogans. Pundits tell us how exciting it is how exciting the election race is, how, and grab hold of the most mundane conflicts as if they were what epiphanies of truth and meaning, and say, look, look, they're fighting about this now. And every year, every year more and more people left disheartened and disillusioned and become more cynical and join the non-voters. Think globally, act locally, act locally, think globally, act locally, needs to be deepened. It needs to be deepened. When we think globally, we learn from our experiences of acting locally. May we remember that half the conversation is listening, really listening, pondering, and considering. And let us learn to covenant with our neighbors, our towns, our cities, so that we may have a ready, be ready to covenant with our sisters and brothers in our nation, in our world, so that we can actually have conversation about those things that matter with people. And meanwhile, maybe we all become blues people, recognizing it's tragic. There is tragedy and comedy in all of this, and don't become cynical in the comedy. 
recognizing that our aspirations of overcoming domination and brokenness require courage. Taking one step at a time, one courageous step at a time.